This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is Audrey Harrison. As an entomologist, she studies the insects around us and how they're helpful in our everyday lives. So today we'll talk about what insects are making their spring appearances, the monarch butterflies, and mosquitoes. You can join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one mpb ring It's one 7464 or email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. And if you ever miss Creature Comforts, here's a reminder that it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, ladies. Hope that you're doing well this morning. Uh, so, um, Libby, we've been hearing that some a lot of events are being canceled out of concern for uh, the, the COVID-19, the, the coronavirus, and that's certainly uh, always a reminder that our medical shows every weekday morning at 11, Southern Remedy, that's a, a source for great information about the coronavirus, and also uh, the Mississippi State Department of Health, if you would go to their website, they have made a special effort to keep Mississippians up to date on the latest information uh, about the coronavirus, but as these events get canceled, it's an opportunity to remind folks of the great yes, outdoors. to get outdoors. This is a perfect opportunity. I'm one of those look for the silver lining kind of people. And state parks all over the state have wonderful cabins. They're spaced apart, most of them. Uh, you should be able to take your family and have a great time. And the outdoors is still a very healthy place to be. So this is a spring to get outside and enjoy the nature. Um, I do have one event that's happening today. Okay. Because we talked about it last week. Uh, Fanny Cook, Kathy Shropshire is going to be doing a Fanny Cook portrayal at Galloway Methodist Church. In fact, today at noon, you probably need to call Galloway and let them know they're going to have a luncheon that starts at 1130. To be involved in the luncheon, you would definitely need to call them. But if you would just like to hear Fanny Cook, you can visit um, their group at noon today. So give Galloway Methodist Church a call if you want to do that. All right. Uh, And, Audrey, I think you have an an event you want to tell us about. I do. The Clinton Community Nature Center is is hosting two different monarch rescues the first two Saturdays in April. Um, so this event will be held outside, which is good, again, for um, to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And, um, and those rescues will be on April the 4th and April the 11th out at Choctaw Trails um, outside of Clinton. And um, they will be from 8 until 12. And so any interested parties can come and rescue monarchs that would otherwise be mowed over um, while they are eggs and caterpillars on the milkweed plants. So basically, you're rescuing the the babies and the eggs. You are, and then you rear them out and release them when they emerge. So um, I guess they're easy to spot, and would you maybe kind of remove them and then, well, just instead of me trying to guess, why don't you tell us how it works? (laughs) 
So typically with our monarch rescues, we have several experts out there at the event and they show you what to look for. And so you basically try to spot the milkweed plants and it's important that you learn how to find the milkweed plants because you'll need lots of it whenever you're rearing out a young monarch and you will be trained to look for eggs and also small um, caterpillars or larvae of the monarchs and um, you'll collect enough milkweed to get you started and um, and then you'll take them home with you and just enjoy watching the magnificent process um, of their metamorphosis into an adult monarch butterfly. So what would you need in terms of like a maybe a, a terrarium of some sort or, or what? Well, that would work, but it can be a container as simple as a little plastic Tupperware container. I love reusing the salad containers, the plastic Mm -hmm. rectangular salad containers. I use those for lots of things. I I make little rearing chambers for monarchs out of them, but then I also use them as miniature greenhouses for seed starting. I have acorns planted in several of them right now and plan to plant some wildflowers in some other ones that I have. So I save those each week from buying spinach and other greens and and reuse those containers. And that's good for as many uses as we can get out of our plastic. That's certainly a a good thing as well. Uh, What about a time frame? What's what's the time frame for rearing the monarchs? Um, Typically, the the life cycle of the immature butterfly is is one month, about four weeks okay and and so they're fun they're they're fat they grow really quickly they eat a whole lot um they are very literally hungry hungry caterpillars and and it's it's a wonderful thing for teachers to do with their classrooms um and and families to do with their children and curious adults as well um i have had you know at some points 200 monarch caterpillars on my kitchen table um, when I've rescued them from roadsides that were being mowed. Um, So, yeah, it's just a really fun thing to do. And so we have those two events coming up. Um, The Clinton Community Nature Center will also have a spring native plant sale. And I I don't think that date has been set yet, but check the website for the, and the Facebook page for the Clinton Community Nature Center if you're interested in purchasing some native plants to not only beautify your yard, but also um, turn your yard into um, just kind of a great island of, of wonderful ecology. So it, that's really important. And you're growing your own milkweed, aren't you? I am. I have several species of milkweed in my yard and in my flower beds and out in in just some open, unmowed spaces. And it's really fun. And I actually saw um, my first monarch adult of the year yesterday, which seemed to be early. So I immediately went online and and noted my first sighting on the journeynorth.org website. And it's a citizen science platform that allows people to kind of track migrations of all different types of migratory animals. And um, and I, I noticed that it was the first um, sighting from our area. And uh, the butterfly looked to be weathered so um, and, and was nectaring on um, a non-native but very important spring plant, henbit, which you see blooming right now everywhere. It's a little purple bloom and... Um, a lot of a lot of pollinators are using it right now. 
Uh, you said it looked weathered. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, um, I don't. I don't know that it's good or bad. Um, it means that it probably came from one of the overwintering populations in Mexico. It looked like it had been on a long journey. I couldn't tell if it was a male or a female. It was. It was flying too fast for me to to try to um, get that close to it. But um, it was just. It was. Going from flower to flower to flower, getting replen- replenishing its energy with uh, nectar from the hen bit, and um, the milkweeds unfortunately aren't up yet, so I'm not sure that it will be able to find anything right now. Or at least my milkweeds aren't up. There might be some areas that are a little bit earlier, um, but the, but if there are any milkweeds up, rest assured that those monarchs will find them because they are just experts at seeking out milkweed plants. So as adults, they can live without having milkweed, right? But they can't raise their young. So she can she wait to lay her egg until she finds milkweed or Well, most adult that? Yeah, most adult insects are at the end of their life cycle. So it just it really depends. It probably depends on the individual, depends on weather, it depends on what stressors they've had, how difficult their journey has been, how tired they are. There's just a lot that goes into it. And so yes, she might be able to hang on for a little bit longer and and find that plant, but those those migrating adults are certainly seeking out milkweed in in order to lay their eggs and start that next generation moving north this spring. Um, we're going to take a break in just a minute, but Audrey, I wanted to ask you one question, and that is I like to play tennis, and so last night was a great night. Some friends and I got out and were playing tennis. I noticed there were a lot of, well, what I consider to be a lot of bugs for this time of year, and I'm wondering in the fact that we had a somewhat mild but certainly wet winter, what sort of effect that might have on the quote-unquote bug population. Well, I would say that you probably do have more insects um, that had a lot of a lot of insects that require standing water probably had a lot more habitat to live in. Same thing with riverine insects. Um, right now, we are in the midst of a black fly emergence, and so my chickens are absolutely covered with March flies or black flies, and um, they are biting their little combs and driving them crazy, getting into their ears. And those depend on flowing water conditions as larvae. And in flood years, which we are in another flood year right now, we do see larger numbers, larger outbreaks of those black flies. Um, They're blood feeders, similar to mosquitoes. The females bite and, um, and they need a blood meal in order to mature their eggs. But there are also a lot of non-biting flies that have probably benefited from this wet weather. Um, I certainly have been seeing a lot of crane flies that have emerged. And they, they, they do. They are the first um, big emergers in the spring. So it's not uncommon to see this. But uh, what people call mosquito hawks um, are out in abundance right now. They keep getting into my house and I, I have to catch them and let them go outside. And um, and they're 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 great. They're harmless. And they their larvae uh occur in either wet sediments or they can occur in the edges of of standing water. Um, and so we've been seeing a lot of those lately, too. Oh, we've so, gotten first reports, too, on, on fireflies. Oh, well, okay. 
uh, the mosquito hawk is that it looks kind of like a giant mosquito it does okay it I've does so those. is that what you've been yes, seeing I've seen those around yes now. yes they they are um in the same kind of group of flies as mosquitoes they don't feed on blood okay um and so they're they are they really are harmless they also don't kill mosquitoes but if you want to think that so that you will keep them around <laughs> then that's fine just keep thinking that they really are harmless and they're important right now because a lot of birds are nesting and they're an important they're important in the food web they um, are, are pollinators just like other pollinators and um, so they're really important in nutrient cycling and food webs and you know they have their own importance just as beings all righty time for a first break this hour when we get back we'll continue our discussion with our friend entomologist audrey harrison we're going to talk about monarch butterflies and the insects the early spring has brought us and more looking for your questions and comments as well so stay tuned This is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield. Our guest today is entomologist Audrey Harrison. If you want to join the conversation with a question or a comment, you can give us a call at one 877 MPB Ring. It's one 7464 You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We've got a caller on the line, so why don't we say good morning to Jerry, called in from Tupelo. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air with us. It's actually Terry, but I get Jerry a lot. All right. Sorry about that, Terry. Go ahead. That's all right. Um, so last year in the spring and summer, I saw three and some people call them different things, but we call them cow ants. They're, the, they're actually part of the wasp family. Yes, yeah. But they're, they're somewhat orangish-red, and uh, and that was the first time I'd seen any in many, many years he used to live on a farm. And uh, was just curious as to, you know, is that a native species in Mississippi? And I don't know if you guys have seen the YouTube channel show where the guy exposes his arm to bites yes. or stings from different animal uh, insects. It's pretty, uh, it seems like they have a pretty bad sting. They yeah. do. They actually have the most painful sting of any North American insect. And they are native, and you're right, they are a wasp. And um, I remember seeing them all the time as a child and being curious and wanting to touch them because they look so soft and velvety. And I did make that mistake one time as too. a child. Yes. And it, and it yes. was very, very painful. They are solitary wasps, so they're different than, you know, the paper wasps, like red wasps that we see or horn. Hornets. Um, 
But um, the ones that you're seeing crawling on the ground that look like ants, you know, hence the name cow ants, um, are females. And the females are flightless. And oftentimes whenever they are in their mating season, you'll see males swarming over the same areas, just flying really close to the ground as the females. And they're in the family mutility. And um, they are they are one of our native um, wasp species. And there are several species of those cow ants. There are some that are smaller and then the the big velvety, red velvety ones. Um, But, yes, they are native and they do pack a powerful sting. We we always call them velvet ants. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sorry, Terry, we're going to have to let you go. We're breaking up a little bit on your phone there, but we appreciate your calling in. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting this hour with entomologist Audrey Harrison. If you have a question or a comment, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Got some open phone lines, so if you want to join the conversation, go ahead and give us a call. So, um, Audrey, if you would, remind us what uh, got you interested in in insects and studying insects. Well, I've had a lifelong fascination with insects. I attended entomology camp through Mississippi State University as a child, and that really introduced me to the field of entomology and the study of insects and um, some of the, you know, the taxonomic treatments or the naming of the scientific naming of the insects and then I gave that up because I was made fun of for going and uh, didn't get back into entomology until college where I was um, I started out college at Mississippi College as a pre-med student and realized in my first semester that I would rather study insects and was introduced to those through Dr. Bill Stark who is one of our um, infamous entomologists in the state. Uh, do you know if they still do that entomology camp at uh, Mississippi State? They do. They do. It's called Bug and Plant Camp, and they have it every summer. Uh, some summers have two different camps. And in recent years, I've gone back and helped teach the aquatic entomology uh, portion of that camp. And I'm, I'm not sure if I will we'll be able to do that this year. But it's a really it's a really good camp. It's a week long, and the kids learn techniques um, of collecting insects and and they create a an insect collection, like a pinned collection. So they learn how to pin insects, how to spread moths and butterflies. They learn um, identification techniques of insects, and it's it's really it's really good because it introduces a lot of children to the scientific study of insects. And you mentioned earlier a weathered butterfly, and I think a lot of us remember that the monarch butterflies have this incredible migration but it is a fascinating thing so if you would kind of again let us remind us of all about how that works sure so right now the migration of monarch butterflies from their overwintering grounds in in mexico has begun so the eastern north american population of monarch butterflies overwinters in uh, south central mexico in the mountains and they are all clinging on to oyamel fir trees and so they so all of the monarch 
monarch population is huddled in this and congregated in this one area, um, all of this this population. There's a western population um, that that occurs west of the Rocky Mountains and those overwinter along the California coastline. But uh, we are part of that eastern population and they all fly to Mexico um, in the fall and overwinter on those fir trees. And now they are beginning to make their way back north. And the Texas coast, Mississippi coast, Alabama coast is really their first um, their first stop on their journey north. And so they're seeking out milkweed and the milkweed should be up along the coast. And I've seen several pictures of caterpillars in recent weeks um, from those migrating adults and possibly for, from some non-migratory monarchs on the coast. Um, but And now they're making their way up through um, central Mississippi, apparently, as of yesterday, and we'll continue to see them come. And so be on the lookout for them. They're big orange butterflies, and they're pretty easy to spot. They'll be You'll see them nectaring and searching for milkweeds. And, you know, we think of migrating birds in flocks. Do the butterflies migrate in groups as well? Historically, I would say it would be very common to see them in large groupings. Um, They are... They have been in a 25-year decline now, and so they're not as commonly seen in groups as they once were. But I would say that it would not be uncommon to see three or four, you know, in a particular place at one time. And I have seen those numbers. And in the fall, I would say when they're migrating south, um, you would be more likely, more, more prone to see them in larger groups. And so what's their range, uh, sort of what's their final destination when they're coming back from the overwintering? Well, they will have a multi-generational movement north into into southern Canada. And so by multi-generational, their spring migration, um, what I mean by that is during their spring migration, they will, there will be successive generations that move north. So in the fall, the same butterfly can move from let's say Minnesota all the way to Mexico. But in the spring, the movement that you see takes place over several three or four generations of butterflies. So um, the adults that we're seeing now will lay their eggs on the milkweed. Those babies will grow up, emerge, move a little bit farther north, lay their eggs farther north, farther north, and then that will continue on until it's time for them to start heading south in the fall. Hmm. We're talking today on Creature Comforts with entomologist Audrey Harrison. If you have a question or a comment, you can give us a call. The phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. Our phone number is 1-877-672-7464. You can email the show as well. Just send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So we've mentioned milkweed a couple of times, and that's that they really seek this out. So would planting milkweed be a way that we can help monarchs uh, on their journey, I guess, maybe either direction? 
That's a great way to help monarchs. And it is, in fact, their host plant. So it is the only group of plant species that their larvae, the caterpillars, can eat. Um, so it's it's critical for them because that's their only food source. And, um, and also, um, they have beautiful flowers that the adults use as nectar plants, too. Um, so they're really great to incorporate into your yard and into your lawn if you want to leave some areas unmowed, which is one of the best things that you can do for insects in general, is to lay off the mower, let some areas, you know, mark off some areas, let them grow up, um, and you will benefit not only monarchs, but a lot of other insects as well. Um, it, It is important to plant native milkweeds. Um, One of the most readily available species of milkweed is the tropical milkweed. And you don't want to plant that. It's native uh, to to Mexico, um, but it's not native here, and it can cause some problems with parasites on with the monarch butterflies, and it can actually kill them. So, um, if so, if you would avoid those and seek out one of our, you know, one or two of our eighteen species of native milkweeds in the state. Are there places to buy those other than Clinton Nature Center? There are. There are places. Um, there are plant sales, kind of. Uh, scattered around the state. Um, There's a nursery in West Point, Mississippi, that you can get native milkweeds from. There um, is an Audubon Center in Holly Springs. Strawberry Plains has native milkweeds for sale. Uh, The Crosby Arboretum down closer to the coast has has native plant sales throughout the year. And and then also, you can search out seeds for yourself and and grow your own milkweeds from wild populations as well. And I'm not fell to rushing the Gestalt Gardener, but I would think a native plant would grow better in Mississippi than one that you got that, that was not native anyway. So search out those native milkweed plants to really help out uh, the monarch butterflies. Before our next break, let's go back to the phones. And we say good morning to Sue, who's called in from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'd like to ask. I'm just wondering: is there any are there any natural enemies for a mature butterfly? But do birds eat them, or does weather get them, or like storms and things? What what is the greatest natural enemies for for the monarchs and other butterflies? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, so when they're migrating north from Mexico, that's a long journey, and if you do have a late freeze or a strong weather event, that can take out a lot of butterflies at one time. So that is one cause of adult mortality. Um, there are predators. Monarch butterflies are toxic to a lot of different um, predators, but their their predators have adapted to their toxicity, and they know which parts of the butterfly they can eat and which parts they can't. And um, and so birds are birds do eat the adults. Um, if a you know if a if a spider catches an adult in its web, it certainly can eat it. Um, we see a lot of predation on monarch caterpillars, and one of their biggest predators are stink bugs. And it it makes me so mad. I know it's the circle of life, but when I go out to my milkweed plants and I'm admiring my caterpillars, and I see a stink bug with a monarch caterpillar in its beak it just makes me really furious um but so stink bugs are um are predators on the larvae and other insects are as well 
All right, uh, Sue, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Time for another break. Uh, if you have a question or a comment for our guest entomologist, Audrey Harrison, or a recent brush with wildlife that you'd like to share with us, you can give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest for this hour is entomologist Audrey Harrison. You can join our conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 or email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to the phone lines we go. Craig's called in from Biloxi. Good morning, Craig. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. Uh, I was wondering if we have to worry about uh, mosquitoes transmitting this new virus. I know they transmit uh, West Nile. Yeah, so I don't think so. I don't, I mean, it's hard to know for sure, but it seems like people are doing a pretty good job spreading it, and I don't think we need to worry about insects spreading it. There's no evidence of it spreading any of the other coronaviruses, so it's a pretty good guess that they don't. Okay, it it does spread West Nile, doesn't it? Yes, which is not, that's a different kind of a virus, though. Okay. All right, Craig, thanks for your call. We've got some open phone lines on Creature Comforts. If you'd like to call in, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Here's a question. Uh, what about mosquito sprays in the backyard and their effect on butterflies? Oh, Kevin, this is going to get me on a soapbox. <laughs> So mosquito sprays, and this is, you know, fogs that you can do in your own backyard. This is the truck coming through your neighborhood. They are not selective for mosquitoes, meaning they kill everything that they touch. And that is very, very problematic because they don't actually do a great job of controlling mosquitoes because they're not addressing the problem or the source of those mosquitoes to begin with. So, um, But they are having a detrimental effect on all of the other insects, including butterflies. And so I would encourage you to call um, and request that your yard be skipped and maybe your neighborhood be skipped. I would, I would um, suggest that you don't fog your yard for mosquitoes and instead get Get rid of your um, your pet mosquitoes, the ones that you are rearing unintentionally um, by leaving sitting water standing around. And if you live near a pond or a small pool of water, I would just, you know, use common sense. Wear long sleeves, wear long pants, spray yourself, but don't spray your whole yard because that, that really does take out a lot of insects. And just as an example, an oak tree can host 
thousands and thousands and thousands of caterpillars. All different sorts of species of, of butterflies and moths rely on an oak tree. And a single clutch of chickadees, and we're in, we're in nesting season for our birds, um, can, they need thousands of caterpillars to, just to rear out one clutch of chickadees. Some estimates are 9,000 caterpillars are needed for one nest clutch of chickadees to be able to reach maturity and fledge. And so, you know, one spray from the mosquito truck can wipe out all of those caterpillars. And um, and it, so it's just not very helpful with mosquitoes, and it does far more harm than good. So I would encourage you to stop that and use your voice to, to ask to not be sprayed. Uh, and again, with this as wet as this winter has been, it would be a good idea to just go through your yard and make sure that you don't have any standing water because again that's what's uh, that's what the mosquitoes need uh, to breed so uh, is there any type of spin that you can put on a mosquito that makes it more than just a nuisance? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mosquitoes are critical components of our ecosystem um, they are they are so important for underwater insectivores so so animals that eat insects underwater such as fish and amphibians and other insects eat their larvae. They also help break down organic matter and clean up the water and then transfer that energy into the terrestrial environment when they emerge and when they emerge they are important the they're important pollinators so the males are nectar feeders and pollinate our uh, flowers and um, and then they get eaten by a slew of other terrestrial animals such as bats and birds etc so they they really are important and even though they are a nuisance to us um, that doesn't mean that they're not important components of our ecosystem so again if you can control the extra population in your yard and then also i would guess and correct me if i'm wrong here but when we spray <coughs> the stuff on ourselves that's repelling the mosquitoes, and it's not necessarily killing them. So, am I correct in that? Yeah. So you just basically want to keep them from biting you, and um, and it's only the females, like I said earlier about the black flies, that are biting. Um, they need that blood meal to mature their eggs, so that they can go to standing water and and deposit their eggs in that water body. And so, um, preventing them from having that blood meal from you is, you know, could be preventing a whole family lineage of mosquitoes. Uh, so some of the other bugs that I think we'll see, and I think it's a, a little early, but one of the ones I find uh, interesting are love bugs. And so I guess, it is it still a little bit early in the year for those? It is. It's a little bit early for those, but they emerge in mass and um, actually not in as high of numbers as they used to. I don't know if y'all noticed what I noticed last year, but um, my car certainly did not get just absolutely covered like it has in, in years past. And that's a phenomenon that we're seeing with all insects. We are seeing a widespread, non-selective decline in insect abundance, and that's happening worldwide. Yes. Oh, all right. What about, because it seems to me that this is 
just the opposite. And I, I know a few of the answers, but you know a lot more about it than I do. The ladybugs that we're seeing. I've got thousands in my house, yeah. and I vacuum them up all the time. There are many more ladybugs than there were when we were kids. Tell us about why that's happening. Yeah, so the ladybugs that you're seeing in your houses right now, and we have them at our house too, and they're so annoying, especially when they get in your coffee, um, <laughs> are non-spotted ladybugs. And they are, um, they're not a native species, and they, and they actually occur in many cases in in higher abundances than our native ladybugs do and um if i I'm, i might not be completely correct on this so so check me but um i think that these were released um at by the u.s government in an effort to control aphids and so sort of a biocontrol type of um situation and they do eat aphids, but I think they do outcompete um, a lot of our other native ladybug species, which we have a lot. And um, and so, yeah, they're really annoying. They overwinter in inside houses and other structures, and they they are problematic. And so, for multiple reasons, not just because they're annoying to us, but also because they use the same resources as our native ladybugs do. So why do they end up in in our houses? They just seek shelter in in the winter. A lot of insects will try to find dry, warm places to spend their winter, and those ladybugs are really good at getting into houses. And I haven't even really, I don't even fully understand where they get in my house, but I know, all I know is that they do, and I, I, I don't know. I don't know if they're crawling in vent systems <laughs> or what, but they we have a lot of them. And they seem to be smart about the doors. I mean, I can tell they're they're waiting with me when I open the door. Yeah, yeah, they they're they're really annoying, and they stink. <laughs> they make your vacuum cleaner stink, and yeah, they. Uh, hopping back to love bugs for a minute, I I don't think I've ever seen one that's not attached to the other one or one of the other ones. Do do they spend much of their existence unattached? Well, that is why they're called love bugs is because they seem to always be attached and mating. Um, but that you can see them independently, I guess maybe if they have not found a mate or if they've been, um, you know, removed from their mate. But there are other insects that do that as well. There is a walking stick that you almost always see as a mating <coughs> pair. And the male is much smaller than the female and basically just looks like he's taken a piggyback ride indefinitely and and so yeah that's one thing that's unique about the love bugs and and why they get their name uh and also again it looks to me when i see them flying that one of them is kind of dragging the other one along and i assume maybe the one that's doing the dragging is the female but i'm not sure (laughs) i don't know i don't know kevin that might be um you know, an anthropogenic interpretation <laughs> of it. I'm not sure. Um, I do know that they they can mate in flight, uh, and other insects do that as well. A lot of times, you'll see dragonflies and damselflies mating in flight, and and they can actually fly around while they're in this tandem wheel orientation, hooked together, and they are exceptional flyers while they're while they're mating. Uh, but again, this is a bug. I mean, the love bugs are here during the summertime, and that's kind of their their time to shine, I guess, as it were. Yeah. 
All right, uh, let's do this. Let's take our last break of the hour. We've got some open phone lines, so if you want to join our conversation this morning, you can give us a call. We're spending this hour visiting with entomologist Audrey Harrison. So give us a call if you have a question or a comment at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 We'll be back with more after this, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. We're back on Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, and today in studio we have entomologist Audrey Harrison. We're talking about insects, uh, and we've got some open phone lines if you'd like to call in with a question or a comment. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We have a caller on the line, so let's say good morning to Tommy calling in from Kosciuszko. You're on the air with us, Tommy. Go ahead, please. Well, hello. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I just want to comment on the, the mosquito truck that sprays, you know, for them. What, mm-hmm. How fast should they be going to uh, really get rid of all the mosquitoes in the street, in the middle of the street like they do? I'm just kidding. You know, ours <laughs> goes about 30 miles an hour, and I don't think they're going fast enough to kill the mosquitoes. But I would like to know what is the real enemy of a love bug other than a calm? <laughs> Natural predator of a lug bug? Well, I would assume that they're probably eaten by birds and spiders and all sorts of different insectivores. But the reason that that they and other insects emerge in mass like that is to overwhelm predators. So that's a, that's one of the um, adaptations that they use in order to um, have a higher chance of survival is to overwhelm their predators. And I have been told, I don't know, how much this is true I guess I need to do a little more research but uh, that they have a noxious taste and that many birds will not eat them that there are only a few species of birds that really try to eat love bugs that would not be surprising to me if they're as gummy and yucky as they are when they're on your car too I bet you don't want that on your bill (laughs) All right, uh, Tommy thanks for your call let's uh, stay on the phone lines next we're going to visit with Ethel calling in from Flowood go ahead Ethel uh, my question is, the, you mentioned the spraying for mosquitoes. Is that based in science? Does it scientifically reduce the mosquito populations? Or is it just done because people think it helps and it's kind of a political <laughs> move for your city to do it. Yeah, I would I would say that you're on the right track there, Ethel. Um I don't I think that science has shown that it's really not that effective and that it really is just a band-aid for a, a larger situation because if you think about it, you're only going to be getting those mosquitoes that are right there at that particular time. And if you're not getting where they come from, then they can just fly right back into that area once the spray settles down and um and so I, I, from what I have read, it is not effective, um, and it. But it, it should. I, I would think that it's expensive, um, and that it could be avoided, and more, you know, targeted efforts could be used to help control mosquitoes. But I do think that 
that um, some of the cities and communities use it, you know, to show that they're doing something to control the mosquitoes to appease their their um, community. All right, Ethel, thanks for your call. Let's move on. Next, we'll go to Forrest. Scott's called in. Good morning, Scott. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. I had uh, heard earlier someone mentioned they had already seen the uh, lightning bugs, and I just wonder if my grandkids love seeing them and things and, and things like that. I live in the town here in Forrest. Is there a way to attract more of those? I know some people may not want them, but I think they're kind of cool to see at night. Yeah, absolutely. There's a way to attract more. And it's really simple. It's like less is more. So the so lightning bugs are beetles that spend the majority of their lifespan, which is usually one year, can be two years, in the leaf litter. And they're predators in the leaf litter. So the best thing that you can do is to not rake your leaves. To leave, you know, leave your leaf litter alone so that it has plenty of lightning bug larvae, but then also plenty of food for those larvae. And um, and so with many things with insects, the, the, the simple things such as not raking your yard, not chopping up your leaves, not uh, mowing your grass as often, planting, you know, native stands of wildflowers and grasses um, are going to do more for those uh, populations of insects than anything else. Yeah, the mowing thing is really important with fireflies, too. You know, if you yeah. Just, I know we've had more success with in our yard when we just completely leave them alone. We know where they emerge. We know where our synchronous ones are, and we just leave that area alone, and they come back year after year. Yeah, and I would say that um, if you want to see more of them and if you want to help them along, limiting your light pollution at night is very important because the reason that they are flashing their incredible lights is to communicate and mate. And so um, limiting the lights that you leave on outside during their uh, breeding season and during their emergence periods is going to help them to be able to find one another. And it's also going to help you to be able to see mm-hmm. them because they're going to they're going to light up in darker areas. Yeah, and they, it can really actually cause a population to die out. And I've had people say, well, how can light kill something? But if they're only going to be alive for maybe three or four nights of the whole year, they've been alive all this year in the leaf litter, they emerge as an adult. If they've got three nights to get a mate shining their light and you flood that area with light, then basically they're done. They're going to have to go ahead and die without being able to raise eggs. Yeah. Or lay eggs. They don't actually participate in much of a rearing of their young but they lay those eggs so so leave the lights off at night when you know cut them on when you need them and then turn them off exactly less is more all right scott thanks for your call next we've got timothy on the line good morning timothy go ahead good morning y'all glad that a great program as usual um i'm wondering about tiger beetles in in mississippi how many species you have over there Oh, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I could I could find out for you, and if you'll email um, the radio station, I can get back to you on that. But I, I think tiger beetles are incredible. Um, they have some really unique life history traits, and um, they're always fun to find. I, I, that's one of the things. I work in a lot of aquatic environments, and so on sandbars, that's one of the more common um, groups of insects that we'll see in those 
habitats and um, their their larvae are fun to you know fish out of little holes and and look at um, I, I can't remember what old people call the larvae um, doodle bugs maybe um, and you can stick a little piece of straw yeah. down and they'll grasp yeah. onto it they're predators and that live underground and um, also they're one of the only um, insects if not the only insect that utilizes a wheel to move so the larvae will contort their bar- bodies into a into a circular shape and spin very quickly away and that's pretty cool and for our listeners that that don't know what we're talking about with tiger beetles um, if you've been on the sandbar of the Pearl River the Mississippi River they're uh, they're really fast and they're little metallic flashes they're beautiful they've got that um, kind of a green metallic, and they catch other, they're called a tiger because they're incredible hunters, and they catch other insects and can catch things that are bigger than them, and they are really fast. And they are very fast, and they're tiny, hard to collect. Yeah, they would be in a Tyrannosaurus rex if they were of that size, because they're, I think they're pretty vicious, but they're, they're beautiful to watch, and they're fun to watch, and I like to think they're catching some female mosquitoes that yeah, I don't they, want to bite me. Um, and Timothy, just from a very quick search, mm-hmm. I, there it looks like there's probably around 30, but I don't know if that's correct or not, species in Mississippi. All right. Uh, Timothy, thanks for your call. So, Audrey, we have about uh, 45 seconds left. Just a quick idea of an online resource for someone who might want to learn more about insects. My favorite online resource for insects is BugGuide.net. Um, it is just a fantastic community of entomologists, amateur and professional entomologists. Um, there are great photographs there. You can submit photographs for identification. And um, you, if you know identifications, you can participate in that as well. There's lots of good life history information on there and also literature citations so that you can um, go back and read more about particular groups. Bugguide.net. Bugguide.net. All right. That is going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creature comforts. Our show was engineered today by Michelle McAdoo and our call screener was Liz Gill. So for Libby Hartfield and Audrey Harrison, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.